DNB Tech Minute gives you the day's top tech headlines, from the big names in Silicon Valley to the halls of power. If it's making news in tech, we've got it. Check out TNB Tech Minute in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or elsewhere. Please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the Journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression. And each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical and indeed philosophical or historical interest. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in their fields, practitioners, experts or commentators to try to give us a better understanding of the major issues of our times. My guest this week is Yoram Hazoni, one of the leading thinkers in what might be called the conservative revisionist movement of the last decade. Professor Hazoni is Israeli by birth, but was raised and educated in the United States. He's been a thoughtful and forceful proponent of the school of political thought known as national conservatism, taking issue with the prevailing conservative orthodoxies, many of the prevailing conservative orthodoxies of the last 50 years or so, emphasizing the centrality conservative ideals of nationalism, religion, the revival of traditional family and community values, restraint in foreign policy. His works provided something of an intellectual scaffolding for the populist movement that's gained ground in the last few years, especially with the election of Donald Trump and the British vote to leave the European Union in 2016. He's the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation. I'm sure that's someone we'll be hearing about uh, in the course of this discussion and president of the Herzl Institute. And he's out with a new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, an intellectual history of Anglo-American conservatism with some provocative takes on what's gone wrong for conservatives and some trenchant ideas on how to put it right. Professor Hazani, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start, if we may then, since your book is about conservatism, it's an intellectual history, but also a kind of a, an assessment of where conservatism now and where it needs to go. So let's start then with sort of defining the terms. What is conservatism? Well, there are different kinds of conservatisms. Obviously, it's not a movement like liberalism or Marxism that claims to offer an absolute prescription for every country in the world. So there'll be different kinds of conservatisms in different nations. The book is primarily about Anglo-American conservatism, which is a tradition that goes back at least five, six hundred years in England and then crosses the Atlantic before the American founding with uh, the uh, the American Federalist Party. Let's say that the best place to start, I think, is with a thinker named John Fortescue. He is kind of in the late 1400s, believe it or not, 300 years before Montesquieu. He describes in his book, Praise of the Laws of England, he describes a traditionalist view of the English Constitution, which should sound very familiar to us. It talks about the uh, the separation of powers, the importance of the checks and balances between uh, the king and parliament, the rule of law. He compares the English Constitution to the Roman law in France and Germany and points to the advantages of the jury trial and the ban on torture. He's especially concerned with the question of private property, that it be protected from the government, and points out that freedom, individual freedom, is directly related to private property. So he's obviously defending a conservatism that is, at that point, is deeply tied to religion and to the English nation, to the Christian religion and to the English nation. And that tradition is powerful and becomes the mainstream at many points up until you know, for 300 years before Burke. So I try to broaden 
the view of what a conservative is to bring in these many centuries of development. It was the English conservatives who actually fought against the, what you could call the absolutism of the Stuart monarchs and the theological revolutionary direction of the Puritans. And they also uh, argued strongly against the early Enlightenment liberal movement that you could say begins with Grotius. And you talk about the, the evolution of that. And, and again, just give us a sense of what those conservative ideas are really the wrong with, but conservative values and the importance of tradition and uh, religion and, and a kind of an evolutionary approach to the development of our institutions, the importance of the rule of law. It's this Anglo-American tradition is rooted and then it's developed by people like David Hume and obviously and you talk about Edmund Burke and we'll come along to the American revolutionaries too. Yeah, the emphasis on tradition is something that it's a little bit awkward today. Almost no school of thought that if you study political theory in academia, almost none of them are interested in the question of tradition. So when you look at this Anglo-American conservative tradition, it places the issue of transmission and stability at the very heart of maintaining the nation. And it's not, as people say, something that is, you know, obsessed with preserving whatever exists. I think it's more complicated than that because the main conservative thinkers, people like Selden and Burke, they certainly do believe that things always change and that restoration is something that's constantly necessary. So they understand the maintenance of the nation as something that you wind it up and get it going and then it starts to deteriorate. And then you need to restore it and then it starts to deteriorate. And this constant give and take means that it develops by trial and error And sometimes it develops well and sometimes it develops badly. But for example, Edmund Burke, who, you know, people take him kind of as the gold standard for for a traditionalist conservative political theory. He's famous for his opposition to the French Revolution, but people tend not to notice that almost the same time there was a revolution in Poland, which he supported, he endorsed, because he believed that the Polish Revolution was taking a dysfunctional constitution and bringing it closer to the British model. so the argument is not that we should oppose change. The argument is that change needs to be consist of experiments that are reversible and that can bring things closer to something that's orderly and that works. Also, you also talk about the importance of the distinction between empiricism and rationalism as understanding essentially, and again, I'm going to cut corners here inevitably, but as understanding the kind of sort of primary divert or or the most important divergences between conservatism and liberalism, if you like. Explain the difference between empiricism and rationalism and how it leads in those different sort of political directions. Sure. The question is, how do we know what are the best political arrangements? And roughly, to overgeneralize, there's two answers that are given in the Anglo tradition. The liberals say that there are things that are self-evident, that you can know by inspection, just by looking at it, you can know that there are certain rights that have to be universal. And they seek to build a universal constitution you know, that's applicable everywhere from reason, from you just look at it and you know and you can make infallible deductions from there. Uh, the empiricist tradition, which includes, I think, virtually every concern conservative thinker that you can name, but also interestingly includes uh, some liberals like John Stuart Mill. The empiricist tradition says there is nothing or almost nothing that's actually self-evident. The variety of conclusions that human reason comes to is almost infinite. And I think an empiricist thinker would just look at America today and say, um, well, sure, the liberals are exercising reason and what's 
evident to them, but the you know the Marxists are also exercising reason, and the white identitarians on the you know on the fringes of the right they're also exercising reason. For the empiricists, the problem is that the simple exercise of reason doesn't actually answer questions, and what you need above all else is experience. You need to watch to see what system can be preserved and is salutary and beneficial, and you need to make corrections on the basis of what it is that you're seeing empirically. Briefly, um, I was uh, struck by John Locke is, uh, again, if I may caricature a little bit, John Locke is something of a villain in your intellectual history. Can you explain why his sort of liberalism uh, is so antithetical to um, to the conservative ideals you're talking about? I don't know if he's antithetical to the ideals, but look, the Second Treatise of Government is certainly one of these rationalist treatises. It's a lot like Hobbes' Leviathan or Rousseau's On the Social Contract or Spinoza or Kant in the sense that it begins with these self-evident, extremely simple axioms, like all men are perfectly free and perfectly equal in the state of nature, and proceeds from that in order to conclude what all governments must be like. So it's a series of, you know, not only extremely abstract, but also axioms that are presented as though they apply to every nation in the world equally. And my concern is that that rationalism fuels the kind of blindness that uh, leads people to say, oh, well, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, we know exactly what kind of government that they should have because we've exercised reason and our reason is universal. And it sets you up for an arrogance, but also a blindness as to what the actual conditions on the ground require. And I think that that has come to characterize political thinking on the Anglo-American right since, let's say, the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's been, a, I think, a settling into this kind of world-embracing universal rationalism, where I think that you know, many of the ideals that people ascribe to Locke are better understood as uh, English ideals or Anglo-American ideals, which were discovered through trial and error and handed down by tradition. And that also would help us today if we want to do something like, you know, preserving free speech in the United States, which is a crucial, essential tradition, then I think we need to focus on it as a tradition and ask questions like, if we have this kind of cultural and political tradition, what do we need to do in order to conserve it or to restore it? That's a question that's not asked very often. You've very much, and very interestingly, you set the American Revolutionary period into this framework of empiricism versus rationalism in terms of kind of different approaches to the right model of government. And in particular, you know, you frame the American Revolution in, I think, in a very interesting way. And there's a struggle between, you know, we've always seen it as a struggle between Federalists and the sort of Jeffersonians. We frame it very much in these terms as a struggle between the kind of rationalists with their grand ideals of the so-called, you know, the right sort of form of government against, you know, people like Jefferson on that side, against the empiricists of people like Hamilton and John Adams. And very interestingly, you also say that the, in many ways, and I think this is, again, counter to what a lot of people grow up learning about the American Revolution, thinking about the American Revolution, you frame it as not so much as a kind of, as an assertion of these idealistic, rationalistic, universalizable human values, but actually, very interestingly, as a, as, as a desire, as an attempt, and as ultimately a successful attempt to revert in the American colonies back to the English, that the actual, the English traditions of freedom and conservatism, if you like, were apparently usurped 
by, you know, a, a tyrannical king. Tell us a bit about that and explain that to us and how these ideals and values were fought out over the American Revolution by the Founding Fathers and what emerged from it. Americans had constitutions before the American Revolution. There's a 150 years of history of the application of English common law and of the structure of the English Constitution to the colonies. Not all of them had this structure, but the familiar structure of an executive that's balanced by a bicameral legislature, which has responsibilities for laws and taxation, that had already had a very long history in the United States prior to the Revolution. So Washington, very early on, during the war itself, became a proponent of a national government that would, in many ways, be a reversion, a restoration of the English Constitution. And the uh, Constitutional Convention in 1787 was uh, largely populated by officers who had uh, served in Washington's army, and they had this view that uh, that a restoration of something like the British Constitution was necessary. I, I note in the book that the historian uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb once told me and my colleagues that the sure sign that the American Revolution was uh, being guided by providence is the fact that uh, Thomas Jefferson was in Paris during the negotiations over this constitution because, as you say, this Washingtonian willingness to reimport the teachings and the traditions of the English common law and to use it to form a constitution, this was uh, anathema to Jefferson. Jefferson didn't believe you needed to have a constitution. He said every 20 years you could just have a new convention and use reason to determine what the best constitution was. But the Federalists were traditionalists, and what they succeeded in doing was a restoration. And the reason that the American Constitution has served so well and so long is precisely because it was already many centuries old in most of its provisions at the time that the independent Americans adopted it. And you also make the point that, um, again, counter to a lot of the sort of articles of faith about that, that have become embedded in our understanding of the revolution, that far from being a kind of affirmation of the Enlightenment principles, which we sort of, we tend to think of the Enlightenment as being the driving force behind these radical changes in, you know, in the West, um, dating from, you know, back to the Glorious Revolution in England in 1688, and the American Revolution and the French Revolution, that actually wasn't really the Enlightenment principles of, you know, essentially rejecting or moving away from from sort of fundamental ideas about the role of religion and an awakening of, to science and reason and all of that. But you say that it wasn't really enlightenment. It was exactly, as you just said, kind of more of a return to conservative values, if you like, rather than this being the product of the, the intellectual awakening that people tend to associate with the late 17th and 18th centuries. Right. I would want to distinguish this political discussion from science because many of the important scientists, if, if you're talking about Newton or Boyle or Harvey, these were religious men. And science is something that during that period in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, it was, you know, you could be a scientist and be a religious person. But I think you're right that if we look at the American Constitution of 1787 as part of a tradition of American constitutionalism that already had 150 years of historical background to it. This is the way that John Adams looked at it. He published a book called In Defense of the American Constitutions, which was published right before the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And that book, in fact, makes this argument that there is such a thing as a traditional American constitution and that it embraces the form of what Adams thought was the best constitution 
in the history of the world, which was the British Constitution. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Yoram Hazani, author of a new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Stay with us. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Welcome back. We're talking with Yoram Hazani, a leading national conservative, about his new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. You talk about that America was established in this way, the importance of the English conservative approach and traditions. And I think you say, it's fair to say, again, we're going to inevitably skip over a lot of history here, but that this idea, and I'm very interested, this idea of Christian democracy, uh, as you call it, was very much the kind of animating idea behind sort of American politics, like American government for a very long time, informing obviously uh, Abraham Lincoln, but right through and then up to right into the 20th century. Tell us a bit about that, if you would, about how America, this tradition of conservatism, this idea of Christian democracy, how that developed through and into the 20th century and how it came in many ways to define the conversation about American politics. Well, the common law was, as inherited from England, the common law saw Christianity as uh, providing the underlying basis and values for the legal and constitutional system in England. And this was then brought over to the United States. One of the major significant disagreements between Jefferson and the Federalists was over the incorporation of the common law into the federal court system. And on this point, the Federalists, Washington's party, they won. They appointed all of the Supreme Court justices for the first 12 years of the Republic. And that was enough to put conservatives like Marshall and Story and all sorts of other, well, Story was appointed by Jefferson, but he he also ended up being one of these common law conservatives. And so the court system was from the outset supportive of the idea, first of all, that the different states had the right to have established churches or religious tests for holding office to concern themselves with the general welfare of the public, which included the moral welfare. So, you know, Sabbath laws or blasphemy laws were very common in the United States for a very, very long time. And, you know, this assumption that the the First Amendment to the Constitution banned uh, the federal Congress from interfering in the rights of the states to make determinations as to precisely what form of Christianity and in, in what way would it be publicly supported. But the idea that there's a national government mandate to suppress public or government-supported Christianity or religion uh, comes very, very late in the history of the United States. The first time that we see the American Supreme Court arguing that there is a tradition of separation of church and state that has to be authoritative is in 1947, 1947-48. That's the first time that the National Supreme Court strikes down things like religious instruction in schools. And of course, by the 1960s, that's already become more or less a a ban on prayer in the schools and on uh, devotional Bible reading in, in the schools. So, from my understanding, the big watershed when America goes from being a Christian nation that it loves freedom to being a liberal nation that thinks that Christianity and public religion are not a matter for government and really should just be 
privatized. They should be uh, uh, exclusively the, in the domain of the, the private individual. That doesn't happen until the 1940s. It's, it's a tremendous revolution in America's constitution, which is, like I say, consummated in the 1960s. And uh, I think that conservatives who are concerned to ask the question, what's gone wrong? Where have we gone off the path? I think that's the place where they should look. And in fact, during the Reagan years, Justice Rehnquist wrote a famous, powerful dissent in 1985 on the Supreme Court, which made exactly the same argument that I make in the book, which is that separation of church and state is uh, alien to the American Constitution at the state level, and that the whole series of decisions that descend from those 1940 cases are a wrong turn in American history and should be struck down. Yeah, so the Cold War is, as you say, this sort of Cold War period is where that wrong turn is made. And the other wrong turn you identify in the Cold War, and I want to come back briefly to talk about religion and the role of religion, but the other turning point you talk about is how in the Cold War, conservatives, even understandably, aligned with liberals in the great kind of existential struggle against communism. And that in the process, conservatism became sort of almost subsumed by or essentially uh, became uh, dominated, if you like, but by liberalism. But again, if you would explain that process and how conservatives therefore kind of lost their way or lost their lost their preeminence during Cold War as a result of this so-called fusionism, which the two political traditions came together to fight the, the larger threat. Right. I think this is a very important point, uh, not least because we're going to see a similar dynamic in our time where liberals and conservatives, I think, are not going to have any choice but to work together in order to staunch the tide of wokeism, of woke neo-Marxism. And so it's especially important to understand what happened with that fusionism. The deal that was brokered by Buckley was, you know, beginning in 1955, and I think it was pretty much clear and official by the mid-1960s, was a deal where anti-Marxist liberals and conservatives could fight together against socialism at home and against communism abroad, and they could do it on the following terms. Number one, religion and patriotism, nationalism, these things were crucial, but they could be mostly left to the privacy of the individual, to parents teaching children. I think that they assumed that the schools and communities would do that kind of work. And in terms of national government policy, they were primarily liberals. When I say liberal, I mean their primary concern was uh, that public policy should uh, defend economic liberties and other kinds of individual rights and freedoms against the encroachment of the state, against the encroachment of socialism and communism. They were extremely successful, and I think you know we need to be grateful to them for many ways. I think it's reasonable to say that that 1960s fusionism is, in fact, what won the Cold War. You know, So I, I don't want to be too negative about it, but I think it's also, when you look at it from the perspective of the conservative partners in the coalition, who I identify with, I think that by the time Reagan and Thatcher leave office and you ask, what's the content of this movement, which was called conservative, by the time that Reagan and Thatcher leave office, I think it's pretty obvious that if you take, let's say, Irving Kristol's formula was that modern conservatism consists of three pillars, uh, religion, which he said was the most important one, um, nationalism, and economic growth. And I think all of us remember that by the time you get to the 1990s, the religion and nationalism planks had mostly fallen away. 
And conservatism came to be primarily about economic liberties and other kinds of freedoms. So looking back on this with hindsight, which is not exactly fair, but I think we need to do it today, I think that the deal, what American conservatives, British conservatives, what we stand for as a public liberalism and a private traditionalism, private conservatism, I think that failed. I, I think looking back at it, we can tell why it failed, because the conditions under which uh, things like God and Scripture and uh, the structure of the family, the importance of the, the independent nation-state, and even things like a marriage between a, a man and a woman, all of these kinds of traditional pillars or cornerstones of Anglo-American civilization, once they were privatized, they tended to drop away. And I go to some length to try to explain the dynamic, but to say it very simply— I think that those things that are not discussed in public, that are not honored and endorsed in public by the leadership of the nation constantly and repeatedly are things that come to be dishonored. And I think that that's pretty much inevitable. If you think of a child going to school, to a school that has been stripped of any references, I mean, this is the kind of school that I went to when I, when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, is that the school is stripped entirely clean of any kind of reference to scripture or God or religion. And the message, and it's not just a message, through spending most of your time in that kind of an environment, you learn to understand the world as a world in which the Bible is just not an important part of your inheritance and of civilization, and God is not an important part of the moral order or of the metaphysical order. Those things are implicitly taught the moment that you dishonor traditional religion by never mentioning it. You talk a lot in the book, you write a lot in the book, and you've spoken here on this podcast uh, again, and you just said there about the importance of religion and how, and in your principles, which I want to come on to at the end, your, your, your principles for a modern, for a reinvented, a rediscovered conservatism uh, include very much a um, primary role for religion. But I do wonder, in a country, in America in particular, and even the United Kingdom and Western Europe particularly, even more so, which have become very secular, and I don't mean by secular, I don't mean the separation of church and state in the way you've just been describing, I mean they become secular in the sense of the declining belief, declining adherence to organized religion, frankly declining belief in God or any sort of traditional religious teachings. Numbers are, you can look at polls and there are different numbers, but it is pretty clear that there has been a pretty steep decline in the number of professing religious adherents in the last 30, 40 years. How then, without kind of imposing, and sorry, I'm not going to accuse you of supporting theocracy, but if your conservatism is a kind of, and especially a conservatism that you see as involving some significant role for the state, how does that work with a population that is in very large number and increasing numbers not religious? You're absolutely right. I think your description is just spot on. That is our condition. I would just add that, and I think I speak for many traditional conservatives, that the condition that you're describing cannot go on indefinitely, because religion provides kind of a, you know, like a public philosophy. It's the framework within which public and political life is conducted. And, you know, nature does abhor a vacuum. And the result of the suppression of Christianity as the framework for public life in American Europe is, in fact, the rise of these, uh, I think, fair to call new religions like woke neo-Marxism, which is at this moment making a bid to become the dominant religion in American Britain. If you don't like the word religion, then just substitute public philosophy. But I think that a great 
many people can see that something has gone terribly wrong. And the possibility of attempting to restore the liberal consensus of the last 70 years, I think that's also simply not practical. I think what we're seeing is a very aggressive rise of a strident atheist neo-Marxist religion on the left. And among conservatives, there is going to be some kind of reaction which is not going to be the old liberalism. I think on the right, what we need to do is to look very carefully and unflinchingly at what the alternatives really are. Because if there isn't a revival of some kind of ecumenical, but basically Christian public philosophy that Americans and Brits can rally around, well, there are other things on the right that are growing rapidly. And I, you know, I don't want to be alarmist about this, but if you look at the young people, you look at what it is that they're reading and who it is that they're reading, uh, there really is a rapid increase in influences that have given up on the American Constitution. Mostly they've given up on, you know, on biblical religion also. And what it is, is, you know, all sorts of varieties of dictatorship that are being proposed. I think all the educated young people in Washington and around the country know exactly what I'm talking about, and they're reading that stuff. So, those of us who are you know, who have, you know, decades of experience in the conservative movement, I think that we need to be watching carefully what's happening with those young people. And what they are saying above everything else is something like conservatism has not succeeded in conserving anything since World War II. And so why should we be conservatives? And many of them, in fact, are, you know, they, they explicitly say, I'm not a conservative anymore. Whether out loud or quietly amongst themselves, they're talking about, you know, the end of the republic and the beginning of some kind of dictatorship. Yeah, so I just think that to be realistic, what kind of force can provide an alternative? I don't understand how it could be anything other than a Christian conservatism that uses the power of that kind of movement to uphold the American Constitution. I think that's the only actual viable choice. So let's conclude this by bringing it right into the here and now and into, forgive me, your, again, your book is a, is a, is a fascinating and, and very erudite exploration of these issues. But let's root it in our current politics, all this history and this discussion. And, you know, there is a ferment in the conservative movement, uh, which you capture very, very well. And you represent one strand in that. You know, Donald Trump obviously doesn't articulate things in the way that you do, but he certainly seemed to reflect a lot of this concern among conservatives that conservatives had essentially fundamentally lost their way and then basically accepting your arguments that you know the last 50 years or so conservatism has significantly lost ground and indeed lost its way but is the trumpian movement the populist trumpian movement whatever you want to call it which does scare some people because of the authoritarian nature of some extent of the man himself and it does scare some people some of the things that people talk about the, the post-liberal world that some of your intellectual friends, people like Patrick Deneen talk about, it does worry people that we are moving away from this, sorry, this re rediscovery of conservatism that you're talking about seems to reject what we've come to understand, you know, whether for all their merits or demerits, as the kind of essence of a free society. And we're looking instead at a mother, more authoritarian, top-down conservative approach. Give us, if you would, your uh, conception of what conservatives should be doing and what we should be looking for. I think that the key for uh, some kind of stabilization and restoration in America and with it other countries is uh, for those states, those regions in which there still exists a Christian majority or a majority that uh, subscribes to Christian values. I think those those regions should use democracy, democratic means, in order to restore the kinds of 
uh, democratic traditions that were known for most of the you know most of the life of the American Republic. Like everyone else, I mean, I absolutely disapprove uh, not only slavery but the racism that characterized all sorts of American laws and establishments for a very long time. I consider that to be a, an evil digression from the main Anglo-American tradition. But setting that aside, I think that if we want to save a democratic country, which has two parties, a liberal party and a conservative party, and goes to elections, and those elections are honored by both sides, which I, I have to emphasize, at least the last two American elections have not been fully honored. They've not been honored by both sides. They continue to be argued about to this day. So the possibility of American democracy depends on there being a powerful Christian conservative alternative to uh, liberalism. And that has to take place. It has to develop in states where that is a natural and normal thing to do. If conservative states move in that direction, then we'll have all sorts of uh, experiments and laboratories in which we can see, you know, how good is it and how bad is it? I think that's the best direction. I agree with you. I don't think it makes any sense to try to impose religion on states that don't want it. And I doubt that's what's going to happen. I think we have a narrow window of time in which it's possible to come up with a decent and freedom-loving uh, religious nationalism in certain parts of the country and to see what it looks like and to allow people to criticize it and to move to those places if they like it and to adopt it if it's succeeding. If we don't do that, then we're going to end up having to choose among various forms of autocracy because the number of 1960s-style liberals who remain in the United States is small and getting smaller. That's a very uh, a very good note on which to end. I wish we had more time, but that's a fascinating discussion. It's a fascinating book. You're on Hazani, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. That's the book available uh, right now. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks for listening. Please do join us again next week when we'll have another deep exploration of the issues that are driving our world. Thank you very much and goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.